You're listening to TIP. On today's episode, I'm joined by Gautam Bade. Gautam is the managing partner of Stellar Wealth Partners India Fund, a Delaware-based investment partnership, which is available to accredited investors in the U.S. Gautam is also the equity advisor of Complete Circle Stellar Wealth PMS, a portfolio management service which is available to Indian citizens in NRIs globally. Both funds are modeled after the Buffett Partnership fee structure and invest in listed Indian equities with a long-term, fundamental, and value-oriented approach. If you've been following along with the show, you'd also know that Gautam is the author of the international bestseller on value investing, The Joys of Compounding. On today's show, we're going to be discussing his new book, The Making of a Value Investor, which will be released on October 25th, 2023. During this chat, we cover the impetus for Gautam writing a second book, why journaling is such an important practice for value investors, why judging market sentiment is important and how investors can go about doing so, his biggest eureka moment in his journaling process, why we should let our portfolio winners run, his thoughts on the importance of liquidity, the telltale signs that a bear market is complete, what companies you shouldn't average down on in a bear market, how we can use the wisdom of markets to our advantage, and how investors can best prepare themselves for the next bear market. As always, it was such a pleasure having Gautam on the show again. His first book, The Joys of Compounding, it was so good. I actually did a five-part review of it earlier this year. That started with episode 534, and then I worked from there in the podcast feed. The Joys of Compounding was a book I received countless messages about, as so many of our listeners were so grateful to discover it because of the show. So I'm really glad that Gautam joined me here to talk about his second book on today's show. Also, my first discussion on the show with Gotham was on episode 566 for those who might have missed that discussion. With that, here is my chat with Gotham Bade. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to the Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink, and today we bring back Gautam Bade. Gautam, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me, Clay. It's a pleasure to be back on your show. Well, back on episode 566, we discussed your first book, The Joys of Compounding, which was an international bestseller. Sitting right behind me, it's one of my very favorite investing books. But today, we're going to be covering your newly released book titled The Making of a Value Investor. To start, how about you just talk to us a little bit about the book and what the impetus was for writing this? Sure. So I spent $10 on purchasing a journal in late 2014, and I considered that to be one of the best value investments I've ever made. Ever since that day, I've been keeping track of my investing decisions and subsequent developments in my investment journal. And my writing frequency in the journal witnessed a sharp increase from 2018 onwards. And why is that? It's because the biggest learnings always come from a bear market and those lessons bear fruit for an entire lifetime. So I experienced a brutal bear market in India from January 2018 to February 2020, followed by the pandemic-induced market crash in March 2020. And this book covers the journey of my evolution as an investor during a bear market and my learnings and reflections along the way. As regards the impetus for writing this book, so I often post on social media platforms like LinkedIn and Twitter about the benefits and importance of maintaining an investment journal. And the genesis of this book lies in the response to a tweet of mine on August 26th last year. So 
one of my followers in twitter suggested to me why don't you publish all your biggest learnings and lessons from your investment journal into a book so i found the idea to be very helpful and interesting and shortly thereafter i started working on the book and it took me approximately 12 months to complete writing it and lo and behold here we are with uh, the book scheduled to release on 25th october worldwide well you mentioned your biggest learnings are from a bear market since your second book it's you know you're sharing your journal and everything you've written down over this period of a bear market what were some of your biggest learnings from the journaling process because i'm sure uh, many investors maybe they just don't make the time for journaling so i'm curious if you could share why you see this is so important given that it's your second book that you're releasing sure so this habit of journaling has helped me tremendously in improving myself and learning a lot about myself both as an investor and an individual i receive a lot of valuable feedback from journaling and i use it to correct my personal behavioral biases because like charlie munger has taught us you know our it's a moral duty to be as rational as possible none of us can be 100% rational but you can but you can try to minimize our biases to the maximum possible extent this is where journaling comes in handy because all investors make mistakes but the great investors repeat old mistakes less often this is where the journal comes in handy because you know you it's very difficult to make the same mistake twice if you actually gone through your past mistakes in your journal and that way you basically improve as an investor i've also maintained a personal archive of media commentary and investor behavior during various episodes of market panic during the last 9 years and i find it highly beneficial to refer to this information whenever the market undergoes its periodic severe corrections because what i've realized over time is that human nature in the markets has not really changed much over time and this is again where the journal really comes in handy so it helps you maintain your emotional calm during periods of market turbulence and to not pay too much attention to the noise and to refocus your attention back to what really matters in investing which is the micro individual businesses and their industry developments that is the best that you can do nothing else so always be humble and it's also important to remember that you know just writing things down you can't remember everything in your brain and when you do you know try and remember so many of these different things oftentimes you're misremembering what it is you know you thought at the time and once you write things on paper you really can't lie to yourself so you mentioned the aspect of human psychology and it it doesn't change over time and in your book you talk a lot about what's happening in these various points and what the investor sentiment was at the time so could you talk more about investor sentiment and how we can go about you know judging investor sentiment because there's different points in your book where you're saying you know there's capitulation in the markets people are selling with no regard to valuation so how do you go about judging the sentiment yeah just your general thoughts on this to so clear understanding the prevailing market sentiment and investor sentiment is very important even though it is short term in nature but it's important why is that so it's because fundamentals do not determine the price for a stock at any given point of time demand and supply does and that is why it is so important to understand sentiment because that is what drives the demand and supply dynamics in the short run and there are two very effective ways to judge prevailing market sentiment number 1 is the ipo or initial public offering market and number 2 is the quality of investor portfolio so let me talk about both these points separately initial public offerings or ipos are a very effective indicator for judging market sentiment during stage 1 good companies come out with ipos at cheap valuations or reasonable valuations in, during stage 2 good companies come out with ipos at expensive valuations or very expensive valuations 
and in stage three, bad companies, many of which do not have been have any earnings, come out with IPOs at ludicrous valuations, and which are heavily oversubscribed by retail investors whose surging presence in the markets is a late cycle indicator. And very high levels of margin funding, both in the primary and secondary market, is a predominant characteristic of the final blowout phase of any bull market. So this is why you know IPO and margin funding and basically are very good indicators of market sentiment. Second is the quality of investor portfolios. So as a bull market matures, many investors move their portfolios from high quality stocks having steady growth and high returns on equity to stocks having higher revenue growth, but inferior return ratios and poor management qualities. And then they move on to commodities and cyclicals. Then they move on to turnarounds, which are currently loss making. Then they move to micro caps with limited history of operations. And then finally, they move to highly leveraged companies with projections of rapid revenue growth. At this point, the bull market usually tops out. And at the end of the euphoric phase, most investor portfolios have only junk stocks left in them. During the subsequent bear market, which follows, both quality and junk stocks fall. Quality eventually recovers back fully, whereas the junk stocks lie low for many years. And it is only after going through the pain of a couple of such cycles that as an investor, you develop the discipline to resist the incessant urge to go down the quality curve and chase quicker returns. Related to the second point you mentioned there, the quality of the investor portfolio, is there sort of a science to figuring out you know, what the quality is of a, of a portfolio? Or is it just a matter of analyzing those around you and your environment and the news headlines? Or is there sort of other ways of going about this? The most effective way for me, personally speaking, is uh, you know a few WhatsApp groups on, of investing, which I'm a part of. So when investors start discussing only the junk quality stocks like deep cyclicals, micro caps, loss making companies. And when there is widespread euphoria for these kind of stocks, that is when basically I get to know that, okay, right now it is completely risk on and investors are throwing caution to the winds and they are just focusing on trying to make money as fast as possible. And it is this urge to make quick money and make money as fast as possible. You know, when there's greed in the air and you can literally sense it that you know people are just not exercising caution they're not focusing on quality they're not focusing on the past track record it's all future projection based so everyone is just investing on the future instead of actually looking at the past what the company has done even bigger way to judge sentiment in such cases is when you see a big surge in stock prices of holding companies because you know holding companies stock prices generally go up only during the last stage of a bull market you also see a plethora of IPOs from a single sector coming during the peak of the frenzy in that particular sector during the end of that sectoral bull market. And finally, and most importantly, you'll often see new metrics of valuation suddenly popping up during the final stage of a euphoric bull market. So in the case of the late 1990s, it was number of you know eyeballs or clicks on the internet. <laughs> and similarly, in 2021, during the meme stock euphoria, you had uh, some new metrics coming out. So if new metrics of valuation start being discussed, that, you know, this is a new era. This time it's different. It's never different. The principles laid down by Graham in the intelligent investor have stood this test of time. And those three key principles are what we need to always focus on as value investors. Yeah, for me, a lot of judging sentiment is looking at what's going on on Twitter. And I think, you know, as you get more experience with markets and after reading through your journal, it's quite obvious that price drives perception. So when prices are low, people look for reasons why prices are low and potentially why prices are going to go even lower. And then when prices are high, 
people look for reasons they're they, you know strong confirmation bias they look for reasons why prices are high and try and find reasons to justify why they're going to go even higher so the narrative is driven more so by prices than by the fundamentals and i think that's one of the most important things as a value investor is trying to see that market sentiment and differentiate the price and the fundamental correct i absolutely agree with you and uh, you know successful in investing is all about having people agree with you later because the alignment between price and value can be greatly distorted in the short run by technical and psychological factors but as benjamin graham has taught us in the short run the market is a voting machine but in the long run it's a weighing machine so and ironically in order to generate alpha investors do need the markets to be efficient eventually because the markets need to realize that they have made a mistake in valuing a company and then the market needs to correct it otherwise mispricings would persist forever and in such a market no one could reliably outperform so you're absolutely right that you know in the short run price does drive perception but that is what allows value investors to exploit mr market to our advantage because he's a manic depressive on you know he either becomes overly exuberant or he becomes overly depressive I wanted to share some of your journal entries here and just give you, you know, some of my favorite ones and give you a chance to elaborate on them. The first one I'll read here is an important lesson for me in my investing journey. If it is a good quality business with high growth prospects for a long period of time, then it is okay to pay a high PE and sacrifice the first year return. The returns from the second to fifth years will compensate for the flat return in the first year." End quote. And I tend to agree with you on this in that I'd prefer to, you know, pay up for quality, at least pay up in terms of seeing an optically high valuation multiple rather than putting a bigger emphasis on a lower multiple and less emphasis on business quality. And I agree that having that multi-year view is important. So I'd love for you to expand more on this and having that longer term view and putting more emphasis on quality. So for businesses that will grow their earnings even at a moderate pace but for a very long period of time the optically high price to earning multiples that deter many value investors is in reality pretty low this means that if you buy a strongly moated business at what appears to be a full price based on current year earnings you will still end up compounding your money at a higher rate than the discount rate you used to arrive at the fair value for the business and the longer the competitive advantage period for a business the more the business is likely to be worth than what many market participants think durability of the moat is the key factor here so the market tends to underappreciate companies that have really strong moats because that durability allows the company's runway to last much more longer than what many people expect so for long term investing the focus needs to shift away from entry p multiples to duration of the competitive advantage period buying a stock is not that difficult lately in today's information age holding on to it amid all the noise in the digital age that is what is more difficult and you know if you want to hold on to a stock for the long run you have to focus on two key things which i've talked about in my book as well you know whether the company is growing revenues at a healthy clip and whether the original competitive advantage which you bought the business for is that still in place as long as these two things are in place just stay put because the competitive advantage of the business will allow it to earn returns on capital above the cost of capital and for such kind of businesses the maximum delta the maximum rate of change the maximum intrinsic value creation takes place when they focus on improving revenue growth so you now for companies with high returns on capital which are enabled in turn by their competitive advantage as long as revenue growth is healthy in double digits or more just stay put you'll do very well over the long run and you have to just 
hold on during the periodic time corrections and the you know, stock price sell-offs during market falls. But you know, you'll make a pretty good CAGR if you can simply hold on. Because in order to have a 10 bagger or a 20 bagger, you need to hold on to a 10 bagger or a 20 bagger. But during phases of euphoria, which in the in the urge to make quicker money, we just sell our you know, family silver and buy junk quality stocks. That is not what is really helpful for investing. Yeah. I totally agree with you. And you talk about, uh, you know, the biggest edge a lot of investors can have is a behavioral edge. And Bill Miller's talked about, you know, the three edges you can have is informational, analytical, and behavioral. And of all individual investors, you know, behavioral is the key one to where we can really find that edge and find that advantage. Anyone can go out and buy a stock today, but how many people can buy a good quality company and just sit on it for five plus years? That's very true. I mean, just look at what happened last day with uh, not a stock recommendation, but just look at what happened with Google. The moment uh, Microsoft you know, took a stick in chat GPT and Google's bar did not really do well in the beginning, Google's stock price fell down to $80 and today it is $140. Did the intrinsic value of Google change by hundreds of billions of dollars in a matter of six months? No, right? But we just get so lost in the you know, information overload that we panic and sell our you know, high quality you know, blue chip stocks. That is not how long-term wealth is created. Buffett became Buffett because he was able to compound his money at a healthy clip for more than six to seven decades. That is what made him Buffett. So I'm not saying that you have to cling on to you know a single stock for the long run, but at least remain invested inside the market with a good portfolio over the long run. Only consider selling the high quality stocks when they become absurdly overvalued. For example, 150, 200 P multiples. If they start trading at those kind of multiples, then then consider selling them. But I've seen over time in the markets clear that for these high quality growth stocks, they start off from a cheap valuation, then they become reasonably valued, then they become expensively valued, then they become very expensive, and then finally they become absolutely overvalued. But you have to create wealth in the true sense. You have to hold on for that entire duration during the high growth phase of a company because the market in those cases keeps discounting earnings many years out. And that is how you get valuation re-rating. And that is how you get life-changing multi-baggers in the stock market. I'll turn to another excerpt from your book here. We need to humbly acknowledge the fact that a long-term investment of five to seven years is becoming increasingly difficult in today's dynamic world. If a company doesn't adapt to changing environments or coming disruptions, its business model could become obsolete before you know it. Don't get married to your stocks and don't fall in love with management. Many investors' portfolios got eroded in this bear market because of inertia and complacency. So I'd like for you to talk more about this need to continually reassess our investments in a world that is changing more rapidly than ever. It pays to have a long-term view, but a long-term view must be combined with an investment process, which is willing to continually question the core investment thesis. And investors should exercise active patience, that is diligently verifying their original investment thesis on a regular basis and doing nothing until something materially negative or adverse emerges. All too often, investors become very complacent and stop questioning their holdings when the stock prices are going up. They resume analyzing in detail only when the stock prices start falling. But don't do that. Don't analyze your holdings only when the stock prices fall. Just because the prices of the stocks in your portfolio are going up doesn't mean that there is nothing wrong taking place in the underlying business. So be very vigilant. Things are changing at a very rapid clip because of technology around the world. And we always need to focus on terminal value because that is where 70 to 80% of the intrinsic value of any business resides. So if the terminal value is getting adversely impacted by any 
कॉम्पिटेटिव डेवलपमेंट और एनी टेक्नोलॉजिकल एडवांसमेंट देन यू हैव टू टेक एक्शन अकॉर्डिंगलीपिसोडोर्ट Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions. Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously. And the best part is that it's a hundred percent free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, "What is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts?" Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zuck, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than five hundred billion dollars, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Khosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate. How to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds. How to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments. How investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income. And how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. This next entry is a pretty interesting one, so I'm really interested to hear your take on it. Compounding is convex on the upside and concave on the downside. Positive asymmetry. Few understand this, but the day you do, it will change your investing perspective forever. So, what do you mean here by compounding is convex on the upside and concave on the downside? Well, this was one of the biggest eureka moments in my investing journey, and I'm sure this is also going to be a big eureka moment for many listeners to our podcast today. If they can understand this power of this positive asymmetry in compounding, then it can potentially change their perspective about investing forever. So, 
we often hear about the power of compounding in terms of you know if you compound your money at 20% for 25 years you get a 100 bagger or if you compound your money at 26% for 20 years you get a 100 bagger but the true power of compounding lies is the, in this positive asymmetry which i'm talking about so when i say it's convex on the upside and concave on the downside what it means is compounding increases at an increasing rate on the upside and it decreases at a decreasing rate on the downside so let me explain this with the help of an example Let's assume that you have bought two stocks for hundred dollars each, and the first stock goes up by twenty six percent in year one and becomes one twenty six, and the second stock decreases by twenty six percent in year one and becomes seventy four. So net net in the at the end of year one you have made zero return, right? What do you think would happen by the end of year ten if every year stock one goes up by twenty six percent and stock two decreases by twenty six percent? What do you think would happen at the end of year ten? What would be your CAGR? You basically made zero at the end of year one. Any idea what would be your CAGR at the end of year ten? You're really putting me on the spot here. I'm going to say uh, something greater than fifteen percent is what I'm going to guess. <laughs> so the actual answer is seventeen point six percent. So your at the end of year ten, even though stock two went to point zero one, almost went to zero, you at an aggregate portfolio level, you still ended up making seventeen point six percent. And this was this finding was a eureka moment for me because this is where the real power of compounding lies. The real power of compounding lies in its ability to empower you and enable you to be wrong fifty percent mm -hmm. of the time and still make very handsome returns over time because there is no limit to the upside, but the bottom, the, the downside, is capped at zero. Right. So basically, this is you know the true eureka moment for me because you know what this made me realize is that. If you sim can simply hold on to your winners for the long run, the overall portfolio return will be taken care of. And I'll give you a live example from my own India fund, which I've been running for the last twelve uh, months. So our India fund went live on third October last year. It's up eighteen percent in the first twelve months. And when I was doing a portfolio attribution analysis to see which stocks contributed the most, surprising to me that four stocks out of the initial twenty-three stocks. Accounted for more than eighty percent of the overall return of the fund in the first twelve months. The other other nineteen stocks hardly contributed, and this is again the power of compounding at play. Convexity on the upside, you let the winners run, mm -hmm. let them become big winners because you know investing is a probabilistic activity. You're going to be wrong a lot of the time, but as long as you make your winners count and don't blow up in any of the other picks, you'll do very very well at an aggregate portfolio level. Very powerful principle, positive asymmetry, and just. Reinforces the power of holding onto your winners. Thank you for sharing that. It's very interesting how you know it's so difficult just to find the winners, but it's just as difficult just to hang on to them because it can be so easy after you see just a five bagger, for example, in five or ten years, just to let go of it and think you can go and find the next big winner. When in reality, we should be likely be a very reluctant seller as long as the business continues to perform. I would like to share uh, two pieces of statistics here, just to you know, because this is such an important topic that very few people talk about the importance of holding on. I want to share two statistics here with your audience so that they understand just why it is so so critical and important to hold on to your winners for dear life. Between 1926 and 2018, in the U.S. market, only four percent of all listed equities accounted for hundred percent of the wealth creation. I'll again repeat: in those 92 years, only four percent. Of all listed equities in this country, accounted for hundred percent of the wealth creation. Which means that once you have found the goose that lays the golden eggs, don't kill the goose. Hold on to it for dear life because ninety six percent will fail or not really work out. It's only those four percent. So when you find one of them, if you're lucky enough to find one of them in your lifetime, 
make them count. So that's the first statistic from the US market. Now I'll share, and this powered law is not just applicable in the US market, it's applicable to markets around the world, including India. In India, between 1990 and 2018, during those 28 years, only 1%, only 1% of all listed equities accounted for 90% of the wealth creation or market cap creation in India. Just th think about that, just 1% out of 4,000 listed companies, which means that if you found, if, if you were lucky enough to identify one or two out of those 40 stocks in that 30 year period, you should have held on to it to, you know, really change your life as an investor. So, you know, many, you know, it's, it's very easy to identify a winning stock, but it's not easy to hold on to it. So once you have found a great company growing at a healthy clip and it continues to grow at a healthy clip and it's maintaining its competitive advantage, hold on to it. I want to jump to a different topic that I don't think is discussed too often. One of your entries, it referenced Stan Drunkenmiller, who's this legendary macro investor, just had an absolutely incredible track record. And he said that liquidity is the most important thing in the market. And you know, you, you go out, you live your day-to-day -day lives. Like liquidity, it seems like an intangible thing that you know it exists and you know there, you know there's periods of where capital is uh, is scarce and times where capital is abundant, but you don't really see it all that much in your day-to-day -day lives. Um, maybe you can see it at the business you work with, but uh, I'm curious to get your thoughts on liquidity, how you go about judging it and what you're seeing maybe today in terms of liquidity, because a lot of people seem to be confused with where we're at today, whether the bear market's over or whether you know we may see another leg down. So I invest only in the Indian stock market. So I'll speak in the Indian market context, how do I go about judging liquidity? So I look at the trend in the monthly domestic investor and foreign investor flows. And that gives me a pretty good idea about where liquidity is headed. So for a long time, foreign investors used to dominate the flows in the Indian equity market. But today, it is the domestic institutional investors or the domestic investors who are basically controlling the narrative now and who have taken the mantle of leadership. And it is the individual investor who's powering the current ongoing bull market in India and monthly investments in equity mutual funds in India for the month of September crossed $2 billion for the first time ever. And just to give you some context, this monthly investment in domestic equity mutual funds in India was, le was less than half a billion dollars six years ago. So in just six years, the monthly flows from individual investors has more than quadrupled. And to understand why is this happening, why is there such a big surge in financialization of savings, we need to again look at history. So look at the history of US, Japan, and China. When those countries' GDP doubled from $3 trillion to $6 trillion, so their stock markets did not just double. Their stock markets tripled or even quadrupled. And why did that happen? It's because when a nation transitions from a low per capita income country to a middle income per capita country, the basic spending on items like food does not go up much. But these categories of branded discretionary consumption and financialization of savings, these two categories simply explode. Today, India is at $3.4 trillion of GDP. And in the last few years, we are already seeing this trend of financialization of savings playing out. A quadrupling of flows in uh, domestic equity mutual funds is just the beginning. I think that the day is not too far when the domestic investor flows will actually surpass the foreign investor flows in India. And then we won't be dependent on foreign investor money anymore. And this is, again, like I write in my book, this is the reason why quality stocks in India just do not correct much. because. At every low level, there's so much domestic money coming in to the market every month that the domestic mutual fund managers and the local uh, 
fund managers of uh, private funds they are just waiting on the sidelines with so much liquidity to buy these stocks so this is again why you know if you invest in good quality stocks in india your drawdowns are basically li- uh, limited and minimized to the maximum extent possible So when you say financialization of savings, is that just referring to more and more people having access to brokerage accounts and getting access to the world of investing? Not just access to brokerage account, it also means access to banking accounts. Mm-hmm. So driven by our Prime Minister's uh, Jandan Yojana, in the last uh, few years, there's been a surge in financial inclusion in the country and a lot of people are also opening bank accounts. They're also you know, accessing uh, you know, a lot of financial services through digital medium like you know mobile apps and the like and financialization of savings does not only include the stock market it also includes various aspects of financial services like wealth management insurance and asset mm-hmm. management and uh, estate planning and so as this is an area on which i'm very bullish and i'm expressing this bullishness through a few holdings in my india fund as well so we're holding some of the leading wealth managers of india listed wealth managers of india in our fund and i think this industry is poised to grow at a very healthy clip for a very long period of time over the next decade. I wanted to jump to your lessons from the bear market in India because that's what much of your journal and your book is covering. So, let's start with uh tracking the bear market and watching prices just continually fall and fall and people selling irrespective of valuations. I'm curious if you were seeing any signs that marked the end of the bear market in India and how we may uh be able to be on the lookout for in future bear markets of signs we can look for to mark the end of a bear market and the entering of a bull market yes so bear markets are very treacherous and very painful there's a reason for that because there are so many false starts which give rise to false hope among investors that the bear market is finally coming to an end if you closely observe in my book you'll notice that you know i've mentioned that during february 2019 when uh, there was a big hope among investors that the bear market is finally coming to an end because of the strikes by the indian army in pakistan you know many people thought that okay you know now this will bolster the current political dispensations chances to come back with a full majority and therefore there was a brief bear market rally and then the investors hopes got dashed shortly thereafter then in may 2019 when the modi government came to power again with a full majority again there was you know a very sharp bear market rally and people were expecting the bear market to end again our hopes got dashed after that and then in september 2019 when we had that historic corporate tax cut in in india then again i've written in my book including myself you know i mean i expected okay now the bear market will finally end this is this has to be it now the pain has to stop but again our hopes were dashed and again uh, the bear market resumed so three separate bear market rallies basically you know just sucked us in back in and, and just uh, made us complacent again that okay the bad times is over but the bear market is not over till the last bull gives up and by 23rd march 2020 i can assure you almost everyone in the world had almost given up and by the end of it all like i write in my book investors were posting philosophical messages about life just the meaning of life in general on whatsapp groups that was just how despondent everyone everyone was you'll get to know the exact bottom only nine site in this case the global markets including india bottomed on 23rd march 2020 but generally bull a new bull market kicks off with a few consecutive months of hugely positive market breadth this is what was missing during those three bear market rallies it was it just lasted a few weeks but not for a few months and you know by june 2020 after the first three months after the bear market ended it was now clear to me that okay now i think we can reasonably say that the bear market has ended and there are three telltale signs for you know a new bull market to begin 
no low value low starting valuations which are based on depressed corporate earnings with strong capacity to recover or grow and loosening liquidity from very tight levels and the three ingredients for a bear market to begin are high valuations on peak corporate earnings based on inflated margins and tightening liquidity from very loose levels so basically this is exactly what happened in late 2021 when these three uh, phenomena played out that is when you had that 15 month long difficult bear market in us tech so this is you not know, this broad parameters may help you but to be honest and practically speaking you get to know the exact peak and the exact bottom only in hindsight right that's exactly what comes to mind when you say that you said uh you know you could see the growth for a few weeks but uh a few months is kind of when you know you're in the bull market and you talk about this in your book where you know it's much better not to try and time this stuff and time when the bottom is going to be because it's only in hindsight when you know for certain we should always just be looking to continue to buy things for less than they're worth and having that long-term time horizon rather than trying to get cute and uh jump in and out of the market that's really that's really it yep that's the best we can do this is and this you know i've tried this enough in the last 16 years of investing tried to trade in and out you know and uh, based on market sentiment or what i expect the market to do without realizing that the best stocks the biggest winners in the market clay they tend to make their biggest moves you know during flat or range bond markets and this is again something which you learn only from experience that you know these big winners what they do is they go up sharply during range bond market when the market is doing nothing basically you know like in india for example like uh, the past also and in the us as well we have had many range bond markets like i'll give you some numbers here just to illustrate this point it's very important so between 31st december 1964 and 31st december 1981 the dow jones industrial average in us went from 874 to 875 a single point move it meant up by one point in 17 years yet warren buffett compounded his capital at more than 20% over those 17 long years when the market gave zero and that is you know the hallmark of a true stock picker it's very easy to make money and there is you know euphoria all around liquidity is you know very wholesome and you know bull market sentiment is prevalent but the true test of a good investor is how much you're able to protect yourself and your clients during a bear market and whether you are able to generate alpha during range bond markets we have to humbly accept the fact clay that during bear market when everything falls you know even our portfolio will fall in the book uh, like i uh, write about my experiences in march 2020 so by february 2020 i had already transitioned to you know becoming a very high quality focused investor you know focusing on high quality equities only and yet when march 2020 came even my portfolio Now fell thirty thirty five percent in a single month along with the index because in a month when Apple Google Microsoft are falling thirty thirty five percent in three four weeks and what can you do you can just accept you know this volatility or you know and just accept that you know this is a general norm for equity market that you will get these periodic phases of fear and pain uh, once every decade but you have to take the pain if you want to enjoy the long term gain there is no way getting around it. In bear markets can also give us very good opportunities to add to high quality companies and on page 157 you talked about when it's appropriate and when it's not appropriate to average down during a bear market so what did you find in your research on this Sure so there are four point four key points here you must not average down much on highly leveraged business models like bank a banking you must not average down much in operationally leveraged or operationally levered models like commodities you must not average down 
in businesses which are facing technical or technological obsolescence, you absolutely must not average down in highly levered business models involving fraud. You can average down or you should average down in stocks of structural growth businesses with a large size of opportunity and having sector leadership. And this is the single biggest advantage of investing in quality because when you invest in quality, it empowers you and it enables you to view every market correction as a buying opportunity. And this is you know, what helped me stay the course during March 2020. If you know on the second last page of the book, you may recall that unlike 2018 and 19, when I felt nervous and anxious, anxious on many occasions during market sell-offs, this time I know that I'm in the safe hands of quality and that my portfolio's recovery, eventual recovery is a matter of when, not if. So investing in quality empowers you to stay the course. I think that's one of the single biggest advantages of being a high quality equity focused investor. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash WSB. That's fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 
up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business. And they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. When I look back to 2022... I think about all these names that were just high flyers in 2021, and then their growth slowed down, and then the stock just got hammered. I think it's much harder to average down uh, psychologically and buy more into something like that versus something that's just consistently delivering the the consistent high quality growth that they're doing. So, like top line revenue continues to increase. I think investors really pick up on that consistency, and you know, it's not so choppy in terms of like. Tremendous growth one year and growth that slowed way down the next. And, you know, I think there's sort of the predictability in determining that quality there and also something that's able to continue to grow and weather through those troubled times makes it much easier to buy into quality companies. I agree. And in the book, I've also mentioned this so that, you know, this bear market made me realize why psychologically I'm not really suited for very, very sharp volatility of. 70% on the way up and the way down. I think for me, minimizing volatility, you know, by you know, building a very robust portfolio, prudently diversified portfolio, I think that is what really suits my temperament. So this is again, you know, something you which you have to go through the grind and the experience to actually discover your own investing style. So I wanted to pull in one more quote here because I think it's just so important when it comes to understanding our biases. You're right. Many times, investors who have seen a bear market are unable to participate in the subsequent bull market due to price anchoring. Focus on finding value, not on trying to get the lowest price. And I think this is just so, so important, especially if your goal is to own high quality businesses, because high quality businesses over time, they generally tend to continue to hit new all time highs just about every year. It can be difficult for us you know, as investors, because it's so easy to get anchored on where you could have bought the company one year or maybe even three or six months ago. True. But this is, again, what makes uh, Warren Buffett the greatest of all time, right? He bought Apple that had already not reached cult status and more than a trillion dollars of market cap. And yet he made the biggest amount of money of his entire investment career in Apple itself. He did not do price anchoring. He focused on finding value. He bought Apple stock and it was out of favor. But Buffett had the vision to visualize Apple as a consumer brand company, branded consumer company, and not as a hardware company. He was able to look at the, you know, the high switching cost and the strong customer loyalty for the product. And he focused on the qualitative attributes which mattered and not you know, the prevailing market sentiment. And this is, again, the hallmark of a great investor. It is your independent thinking to take a view which is different from that of consensus. Because if you take the same view as that of the consensus, then how, then how can you outperform? One more quote I wanted to mention here too is different stocks require varying degrees of patience. What did you mean by this quote here? This is a very important quote actually. And it's true that different stocks require different degrees of patience. Be very patient with able management teams operating in structural growth industries 
And if you can find such companies in the small cap or mid cap space with a large addressable market opportunity and having sector leadership, then be the most patient with such investments. It's very, very important because then you have struck the gold mine. Very, very important. And, you know, there are certain embedded optionalities in a business which the market cannot price upfront for managements that can scale. Businesses led by dynamic managements tend to keep springing positive surprises by pivoting into adjacent areas within their industry and they keep expanding their terminal value, something which is quite difficult to model in an, in an Excel spreadsheet. So this is why you, know, you tend to keep getting positive surprises when you partner with very capable managements and you tend to keep getting negative surprises when you partner with fraudulent managements. Again, you know, the power of management in long-term wealth creation just cannot be overemphasized. It is so, so important. And this is again something, it's a soft factor, but it's some, something which again, you get to appreciate only with the you know, passage of time and with experience. This is why I've talked about the importance of management so much in my new book at multiple places. You'll see I'm repeating the same point again and again, because this principle is getting reinforced in my mind again and again throughout the, as the bear market picked up steam. Because I was noticing that the average or below average managements, their companies were struggling a lot. Whereas the strong, capable managements, they capitalized on the bear market and the depressed industry cent industry conditions to capture market share away from their competitors. And this market share capture during recessions and bear markets is a source of great value creation for shareholders over time, over the long run. That's why you should focus on sector leadership and strong management teams. I had a question here on the wisdom of markets. Many people echo Benjamin Graham saying that the market is a manic depressant, which it sometimes can be, but there's also a lot of wisdom that can be found in market prices and how markets react during different periods of the bear and bull markets. And you have one journal entry here. You talk about watching which stocks don't correct with the broader market and which ones are the first to hit new highs when the market stabilizes. So can you talk to us about how market prices give us valuable information and signals about a company? Sure. So as an active and highly engaged investor, over time, you develop what is known as a feel for the market. So what do I mean by that? If a group of stocks from a single industry are all going up rapidly for a few successive days in a row, then that is a strong signal to you being given by the market that the underlying fortunes of that industry may be turning around and should be investigated further. In fact, this is one of the best ways to identify inflection points in any given sector or industry. And this is just the starting point for research. This is not an, a necessary condition that you will find that the industry has turned around, but it should make you sit up and take notice. I'll tell you what I do in such cases. The moment I see a particular industry, stocks from a single industry is suddenly going up together as a group for a few days in a row from very depressed levels. I immediately download the latest earnings conference called transcripts of the leading companies in that sector and try to read between the lines about what the management is saying. Because you may get clues from what the management is trying to say in that latest uh, or most recent earnings conference call. And most of the time, you'll observe that the stocks which are going up do not even have any current earnings to speak of. They're currently loss making or because of the industry down cycle. But we get to realize only in hindsight that the market, in fact, was a very smart discounting machine so just try your you know try your best to you know gather do some scuttle but try to connect with industry sources to get a sense of what's happening on the ground because by the time it's reflected in the reported numbers by that time the stock prices would have run up so you have to do the work pay attention to the market pay attention to what the market is trying to tell you and then start the work at your end 
One interesting point that Chris Mayer has told me in relation to this is, you know, as value investors, oftentimes we're looking for something that, you know, seems to be trading at a good price. So oftentimes we can see, oh, this stock's down 20%, but the fundamentals haven't really changed with it. So today seems like, you know, a discount relative to recent prices. One comment he made to me was that sometimes the market can get ahead of a company's future growth. So a company might be at all-time highs and you're like, oh, well, I'm not getting a bargain because you have that anchor of where the price was before. But sometimes the market can see you know, a quality management team continuing to capitalize on the opportunities ahead. And even if a stock's at an all-time high, sometimes it can still be trading well below its, its intrinsic value. Very true. So any stock which became a thousand bagger or a 10,000 bagger or a hundred bagger, hit an all-time high hundreds and thousands of times in its journey, right? So unless you buy a stock at an all-time high, how will you make money? So obvious. Seems very obvious in hindsight, right? And in fact, I'll give you one more example here. So no, any stock, any stock in the world, which has compounded at 18 to 20% for the last 20, 30 years, was by definition undervalued at all points of time throughout those 30 years. And while it was hitting all-time highs, this is why I always talk about focusing on underlying value and not focusing on the stock price. And this is what differentiates value investors from momentum price chasers. I had one question here about the Fed. In late 2018, you talked about how markets were falling. And since inflation was low at the time, you expected the Fed to intervene to avoid a, a meltdown. Today, you know the Fed is all what a lot of people want to talk about. There's a ton of pressure on them. There's a ton of pressure and concerns around inflation. So. I'm curious how you're thinking about the Fed's policies today and its impact on markets. Well, it's really interesting that you asked me this question because just yesterday night, well, before going to bed, I was reading Howard Mark's latest memo, which is titled Further Thoughts on the Biggest Sea Change. So last year in December, he published a memo called Biggest, A Very Big Sea Change in the Markets. And just yesterday night, a new memo came out titled Further Thoughts on Sea Change. So in that, Howard Marks is trying to bring out this very point that we are the era of zero interest rates is over. And now we investors will have to work harder to make good returns from equities because now equities as an asset class faces a very strong challenge from a very viable alternative, fixed income, which was not an alternative for the last 13 years since 2008. In 2008, the Federal Reserve cut interest rates all the way to zero. And for the next uh, 13 years till 2021 end, it basically stayed near that levels, right? So money making was relatively pretty easy except for a brief period in between because of COVID. But now that money market funds are giving you more than 5% and the Federal Reserve is clinging on to this higher for longer narrative, that's likely to act as a headwind for equities over the medium term. So what, what may happen here is the markets may become range bound. The markets may go into a long-term time correction, but individual bottom-up stock pickers will be very handsomely, handsomely rewarded. I think this is the time to really uh, for active management to shine and to make a very strong comeback after almost more than a decade of underperformance. So this is what my view is. And as far as the Federal Reserve is concerned, I think they have very less headroom today to cut rates to very low levels. And in late 2018, driven by the stock market sell-off, Jerome Powell made a statement in January 2019 that, okay, I get your message. I will not be that restrictive anymore. And then he started cutting rates by the middle of the year. But this time around, even though the Federal Reserve may want to help the markets recover, but their hands are basically tied by the very deeply entrenched inflation, which, may, which does not look like going back to 2%, which the Fed's target anytime soon. I think we are in a higher for longer 
regime for quite you know a few years down the line i think if you look at the federal reserve's dot plot i mean they forecast that they don't see the inflation going back to 2% anytime soon within the next 2 years so we should definitely pay respect to valuations in such an environment and this is not the time to take excessive risk this is the time to cut leverage from your asset allocation cut high risk from your asset allocation focus on quality be prudent and pay respect to valuations i think that is how i would approach investing in this environment in conventional wisdom you know says with higher interest rates you're going to see lower stock valuations it seems a bit too simplistic for me you know after being in the markets for a certain period of time you tend to kind of become skeptical of if x then y type statements like that i'm curious what your thoughts are on you know how interest rates should be impacting valuations and whether that impacts how you're valuing companies today versus 2 3 years ago so i've talked about this in my book as well that you know as long as interest rates go up in an orderly manner stock prices going can go up at the same time as well so by middle of 2007 the fed fund rate, fed funds rate was 5.25% it was only after many years of tightening that we finally had the subprime crisis and the stock market crash in 2008 and 9 but for many years between 2003 to 2007 we had a multi year bull market because interest rates went up in an orderly fashion but this time around because interest rates have gone from 0 to 5% in just a matter of one year the pace it's the pace of increase which matters to the market not the absolute absolute increase but the sharpness of the increase because interest rates have gone up so fast in such a short short span of time at a time when global debt has crossed 100 trillion dollars and us federal debt has crossed 33 trillion dollars i re- cannot fathom or imagine a scenario in the future when something bad is going to happen because you have a, a scenario where trillions of dollars of debt has been taken and interest rates are going up at the same time so something some big financial accident is around the corner we already saw the initial teaser of the teaser of this in march when mm-hmm. signature bank first republic bank and a few other banks basically collapsed so i think you know you will we will see a lot of regional bank failures over the next few years because of this high interest rate environment because what's going to happen is a lot of people are going to you know basically go opt for the large larger safer banks because they perceive them to be safer and there'll be a deposit flight away from the regional banks and they are they are also very heavily exposed to the commercial real estate market and we all know that commercial real estate market is in a big mess i think regional banks are going to be the very big pain point for the us stock market over the next few years Well, I guess that begs the question, you know, we may see another bear market here in the near future. So, you know, you mentioned avoiding like highly leveraged companies. How else can investors best prepare themselves for a bear market? Well, this is a very very important question, Clay. That as an investor, how can you be best prepared to survive the periodic severe bear market corrections and the future bear markets in your lifetime? Ensure that you have tennis balls or high quality stocks in your portfolio and not eggs or junk quality bad stocks which will splatter after hitting the floor many individuals make large paper fortunes in bull markets but eventually lose all of it when the bear market ultimately arrives so you know during the bear market crash both quality and junk stocks fall quality eventually bounces back to all time highs after the recovery whereas the junk stocks never recover or lie low for many many years and how much you are able to recover after the recovery how much you are able to retain after the recovery from a bear market is far more important than how much paper profit you make during a bull market and quality of the business and quality of the management matters the most in retaining long term wealth this is again you know 
the one of the single biggest learnings for me in my career that you know just focus on quality of the business and quality of the management because this is what's going to allow you to stay the course to have the courage to buy more during market corrections and bear markets and it will also help minimize drawdowns to the maximum extent because there's always you know a demand for high quality equities in any stock market so you know you buyers after the bear market is over the first round of buying comes in the high quality stocks only so not only does it provide you healthy returns over time it also helps minimize drawdowns and you know the point about drawdowns even though these value investors do not equate volatility with risk the point about drawdowns is becomes significant when you're putting large amounts of capital to work especially when you're running a asset management business or a fund management management business and this i've worked as a fund manager at a mutual fund before so i know there are two things which clients do not like clients do not like even if it's a portfolio of 25 30 stocks if any single stock blows up 80 90% even though the overall portfolio impact is muted clients do not like any single stock blowing up like that and if the market if the uh, relevant benchmark index is falling 30 40% and your fund is down 50% or more that is also something which clients do not like clients basically want you to fall slight if you can fall slightly less than your benchmark during market sell offs and rise more than the benchmark during market recovery over the long term you'll end up with a healthy cagr and this is how you build a sustainable long term investment business this is again a very important point for all emerging fund managers to take care of because you no know, we may be comfortable with volatility we may be comfortable with 40 50% drawdowns you know for us for us for us it is like child's play now but clients you know for whom this is not the primary profession <laughs> they they get uh, scared and uh, take you know they then want to withdraw their capital at the capital at the worst possible time when they see their account values crash like that so you know you have to be practical about it take a you know very objective view about this these things and try to follow a philosophy which allows you to have a long term track record and with you know good steady rates of return over time the cagr should be healthy and you should try to minimize volatility to the maximum extent you can in discussing the fed you mentioned the banking sector i'm curious if since you talk about the banking sector a lot during your book is that you know a key part of you know managing your fund and companies you own today and what are your general thoughts in banking and how it relates to india when lending businesses the jockey is much more important than the horse it's all about management management and management and one that has been tested across at least a couple of cycles the market rightly pays up for management quality in this particular industry and for investors in a lending business it is all about trust trust is a vital ingredient for valuations in a lending business because at the end of the day as an investor you cannot really look into each and every loan that they give out and in an opaque business such as lending your primary bet is trust in the management so management factor is the most important when investing in a highly leveraged business like lending this is also what warren buffett has advocated in the past when he invested in you know many leading banks in the us management is what he looks for that is the foremost important factor in his mind when investing in banks and lend- and lenders and what you want to focus on in lending is growth is very easy to come by because you're giving away money what is important is the cost of that growth so be very wary of lenders who are chasing hyper growth or trying to grow at a very rapid clip by just giving away money indiscriminately focus on the asset quality or the quality of the loan book and the more granular the more number of accounts that you have instead of being concentrated in a few uh, large accounts the better off you will be as a bank or a lender i wanted to read one last journal entry here and give you a chance to share your thoughts around it most experienced investors will attest to the fact that it's not about money after a certain level it's about passion and love for stocks and investing you can't really make it big if you are doing this only to get rich 
So I'll just throw this over to you and allow you to expand on it. This is a topic which I'm very passionate about, Clay. And investing success is very challenging over a long time period. It is essential to have great enthusiasm for the intellectual process of investing in order to sustain in this field for a long period of time. Because without the inner strength of our passion for investing to carry us during the periodic phases of pain and suffering, it is unlikely that we will be able to survive in this field for long. Personally speaking, stock market investing remains the most fascinating analytical sport I've ever come across. And it is my lens to understanding the world. Because of investing, I feel more connected to the world around me. To be a truly passionate investor means that you're always thinking about the future and the direction of the world. And as a result, you're always enthusiastically observing everything around you. And investing isn't just a process of wealth creation play. And it is a source of great happiness and sheer intellectual delight for the truly passionate investor. I wouldn't want to live life any other way. And I feel that, you know, I feel really fortunate and blessed that I've discovered my passion in life. And I truly love what I do every day. Well, I can really resonate with what you say there. I'm, I feel very grateful to have the opportunity to have you on the show yet again. And, you know, grateful to, you know, say I get to read your books as a source of income, which is just really amazing. And you mentioned, uh, you know, investing being a sport and Dan Rasmussen, a previous guest here on the show, he referred to investing as the intellectual Olympics. And I just love that. And it's just so interesting and the learning never ends. So thank you so much for joining me for the second time. And as always, I want to give you a chance to give a handoff to your book, your fund, and anything else you'd like to share with our audience. Sure. So readers can order the copy of my new book on Amazon. And if anyone wants to learn more about Stellar Wealth Partners India Fund, they can visit StellarWealthIndia.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again. Thank you so much, Clay. This was fun. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.